Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, thank you, Hannah. And um, what a lot of you there are. Um, I'm assuming that none of you suffer from social anxiety phobia, which apparently would mean that you would be anxious in a large crowd. But if you were, uh, over the next uh, hour and a half, to develop social anxiety phobia, what should you do? Should you take a pill? Uh, Should you go in for some psychotherapy? Or should you just pull up your socks? Uh, These are the questions that we'll be considering uh, over the course of our debate. We're talking about an issue which is of great importance to society, but is in one way or another very important to all of us as individuals um, as well. The motion is this. We've overdosed. Psychiatrists and the pharmaceutical industry are to blame for the current epidemic of mental disorders. So let's kick off with our first speaker. Uh, Our first speaker for the motion is a novelist, journalist, essayist, recently described in The Guardian as the most daring and delightful novelist of his generation. His two most recent novels... uh, Is that outright laugh? From over there. (laughs) His two most recent novels, Umbrella, which I think is absolutely fantastic, and Shark, which Will tells me is even better, deal with the treatment of mental illness. So please welcome... Will Self. Thank you very much, Matthew. Um, I've been on a journey with this question for many, many years, and it's affected me vitally and personally. And I suspect it's affected a lot of people in this hall vitally and personally as well. Uh, What I want to talk about first is a documentary I made for Radio 4 last year to mark the 25th anniversary of Prozac, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, Most of you will be familiar with this category of neuropharmacology. Uh, Statistically, A substantial number of you in this hall tonight will be taking an SSRI. It's just a fact. Something like 20 million prescriptions for these drugs are written every year in this country. When I went into making the documentary for Radio 4, I really tried to keep an open mind on the subject 
But my background view was that the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors were overprescribed. My feeling was, because I come from that kind of place and generation, was that these drugs were mostly often being prescribed for what used to be called exogamous depression. In other words, depressions that are caused by things like your partner leaving you, losing a job, an illness, rather than for endogamous depressions, depressions that are caused by a chemical imbalance. But beyond that, I didn't really have any strong views about SSRIs, or at least I didn't think I did. And what I discovered as I researched for this program and as I talked to people was that what I had assumed to be the causal mechanism for these drugs, which was that they rectified the low serotonin levels uh, in people's brains that caused them to be depressed, that this causal mechanism had long since been disproved by medical science. And indeed, when I interviewed for the program the head of marketing at Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company that produced Prozac, he conceded that there was only a statistical correlation between taking Prozac and the alleviation of depression. In other words, the man responsible for marketing this drug didn't know how it worked. Okay? I think that's kind of astonishing, actually. Not only that, but the double-blind and longitudinal studies of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors show, to my satisfaction at least, that a good brisk walk, a talk with a friend or heroin are all just as effective in alleviating depression as a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Actually, heroin's rather better. <laughs> However, I do believe that SSRIs work. One of the people who I interviewed for the program was my own GP who at one point had offered me an SSRI in order to help me give up smoking. And I asked him why he prescribed them, and he said, I prescribe them because they work. I am not interested in a medical, as a medical practitioner in how they work. What matters to me is that they work. Fair enough. I think that they are prescribed by the medical profession in good faith. I actually think a lot of the people in, at Eli Lilly who make the drugs make them in good faith and make a whole range of other psychopharmacological preparations. So in a way, I'm slightly challenging the terms of the debate. I don't think that there is some evil cabal of big pharma types sitting there plotting to create new drugs they don't know how they work and flog them to an unsuspecting public. What I think the crisis that we now face, and I do think we face a crisis in psychiatry and in the mental health professions generally in relation to these compounds, is we're all in it together. And the reason why they work is because of something 
that we don't usually like to talk about in scientific discourse. They work because of faith. They work because we have faith. We, the people, have faith. And what we have faith in is medical science. Boy, do we have faith in it. We really believe in it. And why wouldn't we believe in it? The advances in medical science since 1950, it is not hyperbole to describe them as miraculous. Now, if you consider that in the days when we lived in the kind of societies that are exemplified by this magnificent sacerdotal building, you could believe in a sky spirit and you could believe that a man in a dress was capable of acting as an intercessor between you and the sky spirit for your entire lifetime while never seeing anything as miraculous as what a doctor can do for you in 10 or 15 minutes. Is it any surprise that we have faith in medical science? Is it any surprise that when you go to a doctor and you're feeling depressed and that doctor gives you a pill and tells you it's an antidepressant and you go home and take it and it makes you feel a bit funny because I don't know if anybody has read the side effects on SSRIs, on Prozac or Siroxat, but they run to several volumes and include every conceivable minor ailment in the book from erectile dysfunction to constipation and back again, taking in the perineum along the way. (laughs) And you start to feel a little constipated and you start to have a bit of erectile dysfunction and you start to stop experiencing an orgasm, but actually you never had one anyway. Um, You think, oh, I must be feeling better from my depression now. It's called a nocebo effect. And it works. It works. The SSRIs work because we have faith in them. They work because we have faith in them and we pay for them and the big pharmaceutical companies get bigger and bigger. And the big pharmaceutical companies now fund scientific and academic papers. In some instances, they ghostwrite them. They fund the FDA board in the States that is responsible for approving psychopharmacological preparations. And what they also do is participate in the origination and collation of the diseases that go into the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that is put together by the American Psychiatric Association and which is the Bible that sits on every psychiatrist's desk. And again, I don't think this is done in bad faith, but there's one word I want to plant in your mind now, and it's a complex term, iatrogenic, and it simply means a doctor-created disease. And that's what we're facing. The new edition of DSM, DSM DSM-5, contains a lot of diseases that, in my view, are collections of symptoms that have proved to be responsive to certain psychopharmacological compounds. And what is happening now in medicine is that 
pathologies are being constructed around bunches of symptoms that respond to drugs. It's gone that direction round. The drug is arrived at, the symptoms that it will alleviate are identified, and then the disease is created and makes its appearance in DSM. And just quickly, because I haven't got much time, the pathos of somebody who has a non-existent disease being treated by a drug that makes them feel sick. I see these people in my office where I teach at the university every day. My students prescribe these preparations deeply unhappy and trapped. It needs to stop. Thank you. Thank you, Will. So our first speaker against the motion is no doubt relieved that Will is not suggesting that there are evil big pharma types because he is uh, a veteran of the pharmaceutical industry. Declan Dugan was formerly head of worldwide development at Pfizer, Inc., which developed the popular antidepressant Zoloft. He is currently CEO of Portage Biotech and executive chairman of Biohaven, a technology startup which is working on a radically new form of antidepressant based on ketamine. Please welcome Dr. Declan Dugan. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I've been called a lot of things in my time. And coming from Glasgow, hey you was one. In Japan, Dr. Viagra. And tonight, an international drug peddler. My mother would be so proud. However, I find it slightly ironic that we are having this debate in this building of worship. And the two gentlemen on my right, the high priestess, priests of no treatment, would have you believe that well-researched drugs are no more effective than placebo. In fact, as Mr. Self said, they are nocebos. They're no damn good, but they cause side effects. And it's pharma that's the cynical purveyor of these. I'd like to say this does a disservice to our patients. And I, as a physician, care about patients I also care about the science behind drug development. Depression, ladies and gentlemen, is a killer disease, at least as toxic as some of the diseases it coexists with, cardiovascular disease, cancer, arthritis. Antidepressants do work. I will expand on this in a bit later. Studies over the past 30 years actually show that they do. There has been a huge increase in psychotropic drug prescribing. That's antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents, drugs for psychosis. And it's not just down to pharma marketing. It's far more complex than that. And I think it does a disservice, not only to the medical profession, but also to the patient population, of which I'm sure many of you are or have been a part.
Mental illness is a prevalent phenomenon. One in four Europeans and probably up to a half of patients will meet the criteria for a mental health disorder in their life. A staggering statistic is 20% of children in the UK will have a mental health disorder in the current year. This is not pharma going out and saying, diagnose more patients, we need the money. It's nothing to do with that. Depression and schizophrenia are malignant conditions and attract with them more than a doubling of the mortality, the death rate, just associated with the diagnosis. And counter to the discussion that we are over-diagnosing, I think we're actually under-diagnosing serious mental disorder. And I think it requires not just the minute it's diagnosed, treat it with a drug, not at all. Diagnose it first and treat it appropriately. And also the economic consequences to the country are ridiculous. Apparently it's costing up to £90 billion a year, not just in patients' loss of uh, cost, cost of quality of care, but also cost to the economy. I don't really understand why there is such an opposition to detecting mental disease. You may also hear and have read writings of Mr. Self, which talks about the placebos that we're purveying in the pharmaceutical industry. And we will quote meta-analyses, these large analyses of many, many studies, which when you run the numbers say, they're not much better, these antidepressants and placebo. Well, there are limitations to the way those studies are put together and the interpretations put in them. But I would say that, wouldn't I? But I can go into further detail about it. There are eloquent um, protagonists for drug therapy, which actually say it's as good as psychotherapy, not it's as good as placebo, it's as good as psychotherapy over the first three months of treatment. I did a study some years ago in the UK looking at patients who were put on a drug you might know as Zoloft or Lustro called sertraline. We treated them for eight weeks. And after eight weeks, those that responded to anti the antidepressant, we, we allocated one third of them to placebo. There was a substantial relapse on placebo, whereas the patients maintained an active drug, maintained themselves in a non-depressed state. If that is a placebo, what was placebo? I don't understand what the accusation is. I'm not against psychotherapy. I think what we have to advocate for is the right drug for the right patient at the right time. These drugs do work. The GPs are over-prescribing. That's the problem. Blame them. Blame them because they go to drug lunches and they have a rep in the door who says, I'll give you a pen if you prescribe. That does a hell of a disservice to our GP colleagues. It's not like that. There has been an increase in prescribing, and that can also be due to the fact that there are smaller prescription sizes and patients are being treated for longer. So there is an amplification of the number of prescriptions given out. But there is also, I would call it, a societal drift. I think there's a demand from the patient population to go to the GP and get a treatment. We go to, for, to the GP for a treatment for a sore throat. 
if we don't get an antibiotic, we're actually not very happy. But it's a virus, you don't need an antibiotic, and it takes time for the GP to say you don't need an antibiotic. And it's, the GP is responsible for prescribing. He is to prescribe responsibly. I do believe that the GPs are doing a good job in the face of tremendous stress and overwork. It doesn't mean to say you do bad medicine. You actually have to treat patients well. Also, I think the pharmaceutical industry is not doing such a bad job either. It spends a lot of money on research and development. I'd also like to know where the drugs are coming from that are going to treat the dementia that will afflict some of us in years to come. Who is going to help develop vaccines for Ebola? The ones that are making the excessive profits prescribing SSRIs, perhaps. When I, hope, well, I hope when you leave here tonight that it's not just simply a case of expensive placebos, pharmaceutical companies prescribing, it's bad for you. Actually, it's good to detect depression, it's good to detect, detect anxiety. And I nearly detected a case of anxiety tonight. My colleague and friend, Professor Simon Wesley, said, I'm quietly going mad here, as he couldn't find his script for the speech. And I thought, maybe I should give him a Valium. But then I thought, no, I won't. So in summary, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of complexity in this system. I do believe that, as Mr. Self says, there's a lot to do with feelings here. We're not here just to treat feelings. We are here to treat disease. Thank you. <clears throat> so, now we'll turn to um, the second speaker for the motion, uh, who is Darian Leader. He's a psychoanalyst. He's an author, a brilliant author, whose books on the psyche, love, the sexes, and the arts of one of a popular following in Strictly Bipolar, which is a book, not a television program. He established himself as a campaigning voice against the use of drugs-based treatments for mental health disorders. His most recent publication is The New Black, Mourning, Melancholia, and Depression. Please welcome Darian Leader. Thanks, Matthew. Can I just say, I found that reference to Ebola particularly disgraceful, given the record of the company you have worked for, <laughs> and many other drug companies in taking funding away from research and tropical medicine towards the so-called diseases that will profit the most in the West. And also, just if you'll excuse me for just making a little response before I start my talk, if you have smartphones, you can access very, very easily the internal company documents at Pfizer when this gentleman was promoting Zoloft to see what his staff were actually saying about their placebo versus Zoloft results. And there, perhaps, you can understand why there are currently so many lawsuits against Pfizer for misleading American states and the public into the efficacy of the drug versus placebo. So you can find those documents online quite easily. So the question of the evening, diagnostic expansion, why are there so many diagnoses today and where do they come from? Well, it's a fact that 
a hundred years ago in the medical journals, when you read case reports, you'll see references to people being depressed, anxious, irritable, and so on. When they're used in case descriptions, they're never framed as disorders as such. They're framed as symptoms or phenomena that will give the clinician a clue as to an underlying diagnosis. That situation has changed radically today. Those symptoms and phenomena have become equated with disorders in themselves. So depression or anxiety are seen as disorders as such. And there are a lot of them. In the late 60s, early 70s, around 100 or 120 so-called mental disorders, by the mid-90s, that's been amplified to 350, 360. And today, we're between 350 and 400 different kinds of diagnostic category. Many of them are laughably badly described, you know, the temper dysregulation disorder, internet disorder. There are lots of things that we can joke about, but the more serious ones are used in order to prescribe drugs. They're used in incarcerations. They're used in important cases involving disability claims. So clearly, they're a very, very serious thing. Now, what happened to allow that diagnostic expansion? What changed in those 100 years? There are a lot of reasons for that, and I don't have time this evening to go into the detail, but more or less, let's say that there were changes in the legal and regulatory landscape of prescription drugs in the early to late 1960s, which meant that any new drugs had to pass a number of tests. They had to specify their active ingredients. They had to specify the time period of delivery of their effects, and crucially, they had to specify what disease category they aimed at. And that changed the market in a number of ways. But crucially, it gave rise to a new and more superficial conception of psychiatric so-called illness or disorder, which meant that many of the traits, symptoms, and phenomena that had been seen as signs of an underlying problem now became identified with problems themselves. And it was now up to the drug companies not simply to market the drugs, but to market the illnesses that the drugs would fit as well. And how did they do that? They do that through, as Will said, journal supplements, conferences, paying opinion leaders, getting influential psychiatrists and academic researchers to back the new drugs. They also have two important practices. One's called condition branding, the other's called astroturfing. Condition branding is very simple. I'll give you an example. When Ricky Williams, the Miami Dolphins player, went on Oprah, he confessed in front of this huge TV audience that he was shy, that he suffered from shyness. And that was it. He didn't endorse any drug. It turned out later that he was paid a large amount of money by GlaxoSmithKline in order not to advertise the drug, but just to say that he was shy. Part of the marketing campaign for social phobia, later called social anxiety disorder. And this is something that's been studied by historians for a number of years now. The way in which celebrities are brought in not to advertise the drugs immediately, that comes later, but just to get the condition into the ether on the internet to get people talking about it. 
At the same time, the technique known as astroturfing means that there's funding from the pharmaceuticals companies for grassroots organisations. So when you read in the papers here, you know, NHS patients are being denied an, a cancer drug because it's too expensive. You know, where has that come from? How does that story actually get into the Daily Mail or the newspaper in question? These grassroots organisations, most of them are paid or have a substantial funding, non-restricted education grants from pharma in order to lead to the spread of the condition which then gives rise to the market for the drug. I'll give you another example. With the creation of the category of depression, which again has been well documented by the historians, the collapse of the market for benzodiazepines in the early 1980s and late 70s because of their addictive properties was a huge marketing opportunity as well as a potential crisis in terms of revenue. And so those disorders, as they were called, were rebranded, remarketed as depression, whereas there'd been a number of competing descriptions of what depressive structure was earlier in the century, in the 20th century, Later, you find that the definitions of depression become very, very closely linked to how the drugs act. So if you can have, find a drug that has, let's say, effects on your anxiousness, on your sleep, on your appetite, you can then start to develop a rating scale, like the Hamilton rating scale, which gives particular importance when you add up the scores to appetite and sleep. So you're gradually changing the definition of the illness in order to suit the profile of the drug. And this is something that, again, I found quite astonishing reading the comments made by medical anthropologists and historians before the current explosion in the drug market today and the diagnostic market. 20, 30 years ago, people are predicting with uncanny prescience that what we will see is a move from a time in which drug companies try to make drugs to fit an illness to a time in which we're looking for illnesses that will suit the drug. Yeah? It's like a sort of inversion of the story of Cinderella's slipper. Rather than finding the pharmaceutical key that will unlock the lock of the illness, it's the other way around. You've got the lock, and anything that fits it can then be defined as the illness. And so, to my mind this diagnostic inflation isn't really about making a diagnosis, a serious and responsible psychiatric diagnosis. It's rather an escape from the question of making a diagnosis. Okay, I've got one minute, Matthew. Let me just finish. <laughs> there was a reference just now to the, um, the so-called the conspiracy theories about pharma. I mean... I don't particularly like conspiracy theories. If you read the documents that are released all the time on the internet, the internal memos from the drugs companies, well, it's difficult not to believe in conspiracy. Let me just give you one example before I stop. A few years ago, an association of the biggest American pharmaceuticals companies made a deal offering a six-figure sum to an American publisher called Phoenix Books to commission a novel with no, no external trace to the drugs companies, about a terrorist plot to put poison into medicine coming from Canada, which killed a lot of Americans. And this was in the context of pharmaceutical worry 
about cheap generic versions of their drugs being bought from Canada to the American market. Now, there was more and more pressure on the writers. For example, they were told to dumb down the story to appeal to a female audience. Eventually, it fell apart. The writers wouldn't do what Farmer told them, and they were offered $100,000 not to talk to the press. Luckily, they did. Thank you. Thank you, Darian. So now we move on to our last speaker, Simon Wesley. He is uh, president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He's also chair of psychological medicine and vice dean of the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London. So please welcome Professor Sir Simon Wesley. Thank you. I didn't think I would need to do this, but I think I do. I think I do need to talk a little bit about what it is that psychiatrists do and what we actually are, because already we can see lots of misconceptions coming out. First thing is, psychiatrists are quintessentially, they are by definition, doctors. They're doctors, they're trained in the biological basis of disease and illness. Gastroenterologists study the gut, we study the brain. A bit more interesting, I must say, uh, the only organ that can vote, for example, that's what we do. But we're more than that. Psychiatrists are interested in the life of the mind. And when it comes to treatment, where my own background actually is entirely in talking treatments. I trained in cognitive therapy, and if you look me up, some of you may have done, you'll find that all my work is on treatments, on psychological treatments, not drugs. But we're not neurologists, we're not psychologists, we're also aware of the influence of society on health and illness. Psychiatry then is about three things. It's about the brain, the mind and society and its ills. And you take any one of those away, I don't know what you have, but it is not a psychiatrist. And one of the attractions of psychiatry, and one of the reasons why I you know, enjoy talking to medical students about psychiatry, is because the questions that we address and the questions that we think about, and indeed the question that Will thinks about as well, are incredibly interesting. Is there an epidemic of mental disorder? Now, this is a boring factual question, not one of Will's feelings. Now we're going to have to deal a little bit in facts. We're going to have to play a bit of the boring boffin, but that's needed because the facts are very clear. There is no such epidemic. The rates of all the major psychiatric disorders have remained stable over the last 20 or 30 years. Major depression remains a constant at about 3% in our society. Minor depression, anxiety disorders, mixed disorders remains a constant at about 16%. Measures of well-being show remarkable long-term stability, not just in this country, but in America and many other countries as well. Suicide, a good marker of mental disorder, has been falling for years. It stalled a little during the recession, but that's not the fault of psychiatrists, that's the fault of bankers. Other determinants of mental health are going down. Teenage pregnancy, lowest ever. Crime, lowest ever. Smoking, even teenage drinking and drugs have actually gone down, not up. There have been increases in uh, childhood disorder, in particular eating disorders and anxiety disorders, but overall the picture is one of stability, no epidemic to be seen. So why then might people think that there is an epidemic? Well, there's two reasons. The first thing is that there is no doubt that people now are much more willing to talk about mental disorders. From top to bottom, people talk about it more often, there's a little bit more openness, nothing like as much as we would want, but clearly people are more willing to talk about it and to disclose their own disorders should they have them. And that cannot be anything but a good thing. 
And second, some disorders are being recognised more and treated more. The classic ones being, for example, childhood autism. The rates of people being diagnosed with autism are going up, but the studies show that the levels remain low. A terrible disease, largely neglected, now recognised. Can that not be a good thing? I think it is. My own work on soldiers with post-traumatic stress disorder. We know the numbers of soldiers being coming forward for treatment has been steadily increasing over the last five to ten years. The rates, it's not getting any more common, it's remaining the same, but more people are willing to come forward and admit to their problems, and I would regard that as progress. Now, we're talking more about it, we're recognising more, but we are also prescribing more. That's absolutely true. In fact, it's 50 million uh, antidepressant prescriptions. Well, it's even more than you think. Now, there's been a real increase. It's been going up by 7% a year for the last 15 years. But now, back to the boring boffin thing again. Actually, I said very carefully, this is the number of prescriptions that are going up, not the number of people. And the main reason why prescriptions have been going up is because there's been a change in prescribing habits. Because the research, sorry to be boring, but the research counts in these areas, shows that we used to prescribe for short periods of time one month and there was much more relapse. So we don't actually know if it's more people taking antidepressants, but even if that was the case, is that necessarily such a terrible thing? Now, when Declan just talked about um, the possibility that we might be underdiagnosing as opposed to overdiagnosing, somebody laughed. But I don't think that's funny. And I don't think it's funny because why is it that people don't come forward and admit to mental disorders? There are two reasons. One is the lack of services, not just uh, psychiatrists, but the lack of talking therapies, i.e. things that can be done about it. And the second is the stigma of mental disorders. And the facts are, of those who have major depression, 3% of the population, a serious illness, massively associated with all sorts of ill effects, including suicide, only half of the people with major depression are getting any treatment at all. Half are getting any treatment at all. And of those with the more common anxiety and, and, and depressive disorders, 16% of the population, three-quarters are getting no treatment at all. And hardly anyone is getting the best treatment, which is neither drugs nor psychotherapy, but those together. And if that was cancer, where 94% of people with cancer are in treatment, or diabetes, where 92% are in treatment, we would say that was absolutely scandalous. We would definitely say that. Now, we've heard about the dangers of iatrogenesis and over-medicalization, and that's absolutely right. This is a major problem. It's a problem in society and one that I've spent a lot of my career researching and writing about. Not just about drugs, by the way, it's also about psychological treatments as well. And one of the things I've done that I'm most proud of was there used to be a fashion, you know, when a terrible thing happened in the world, you would always hear about the trained counsellors arriving at the scene. When they, before the dust had settled, actually often literally, not just metaphorically, there they were, out better out than in, talk about it. We showed that if you did that, if you professionalised that kind of distress, you were twice as likely to develop a psychiatric disorder, PTSD, and if you weren't. So there's an iatrogenesis, not just of a drug therapy, but in a, of a psychological therapy, and that's what we are about. Now, why then are we talking about this? I mean, you know, we've talked also about labels, and Darren has raised the question of how now shy children have got social phobia, odd children may have Asperger's, and um, kids are not good with girls, etc. As I was all three, I'm rather, uh, you know, rather keen on the fact that I wasn't labelled with that. Now, that it's people like myself and my profession, and here Darren is wrong. We'll go on to DSM later, I'm sure, American things, of course, but it's wrong because it's my profession that is most concerned that we don't do that because we are already overstretched to breaking point dealing with the things we have. 
Here's a writer in The Guardian. The warnings issued by the Royal College of Psychiatrists about the... I can't even read it here. About the... uh, About the fate of psychiatric services in the UK will ring true for the mental health services, workers and patients alike and drew attention to the huge pressures put on inpatient units and the shortage of beds. I didn't write that. Darian, I'm sure you've recognised your own prose. That's what you wrote. Why on earth would we be wanting more business when we cannot deal satisfactorily with the problems we already have, patients we already have, and, and, and the services that we cannot deliver? Why would we do that? We don't. Thank you. Okay, so, um, some critical things for you to, to know at this point. I'm going to tell you what the result was of the vote that you made from a, a position of total ignorance, uh, which you had when you walked into the room. Um, 43% of you were in favour of the motion that we've overdosed psychiatrists and the pharmaceutical industry are to blame for the current epidemic and mental disorders. 29% of you were against, and 28% of you didn't know. So that's the starting point for our debate. Now, um, I haven't told my good friends at Intelligence Square that I'm going to say this, but I will be uh, asking them to donate a nice bottle of wine to the first hand that I see when it comes to questions and answers. So, uh, (laughs) that's okay, isn't it? Very good. A very good bottle of wine, I think. I'm not sure whether it's Burgundy. Burgundy. Um, So, be thinking about the question uh, that you're going to uh, ask. So, um, let's uh, take these kind of brief points of rebuttal. I mean, I think, Declan, I might start with you. Is there one or two points that you want to make in response to what you've heard from Will and Darian? I think uh, I can understand why <clears throat> there's some commentary, if I can put it kindly, about the commercial motives of pharma. Like it or not, we're in a commercial world, and like it or not, there has to be a profit motive. There are some people who would call it excessive profiteering, and then burrow into the activities of pharma and figure out all the nefarious things that pharma do. I have no doubt that there are some things that pharma do that are regrettable. And I would not want to say that everything is um, good in the garden, constant gardener, um, but I would say that on on the whole, the enterprise is legitimate. In the UK... We have the code of practice drafted up by the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry. We have the Medicines Control Agency, or the MHRA. They monitor our behavior. And as a medical director, when I was in the UK, I used to have to constantly monitor our marketing colleagues and sign off on promotional material. And it was a constant battle. And sometimes they wanted to go too far. I'd have to drag them back. The UK really is quite a good ethical place in which to both practice medicine and promote pharmaceuticals. Great, thank you. Darian, do you want to respond to uh, anything that you heard, particularly Um, from Simon? Yeah, well, just to say the piece in The Guardian the bit that you quoted, Simon, had absolutely nothing to do with the question we're debating tonight. It was a point about the difficulties of psychiatrists (coughs) trying to do a good job when they are. What we're talking about tonight is diagnostic inflation, is the multiplication of diagnostic categories something which affects people who work in the profession not so long ago, someone lost their job in the NHS because they refused to endorse a DSM category, not an ICD one, but a DSM one. 
that these things happen, that's someone's livelihood. It's interesting also, Will's point about our belief in medicine and our belief in doctors. You presented a lot of statistics as facts, but the statistics I've got here in front of me don't agree with your statistics. Okay, so there's clearly a lot of room to think about how those statistics were gathered, what the difference are, is between different sets of statistics. With things like your, your quote about relapse of placebo, you know very well how those tests are conducted and how long it is after the end of a trial that people are lost sight of and we don't know what's happened to their relapse. You've published stuff on this yourself. Exactly. With, with something like PTSD, final point, you say the rate is exactly the same in servicemen, but there are just more people coming forward. How do you know that? How do you know the rate is the same, but only a percentage come forward? Okay. Do you want to respond to that, Simon? And any oh, other gosh, point yes. of rebuttal? Oh, oh, of course you, I want to. I don't think you need that as well as the thing no, that's no, next I've to you. I've been told I do. Oh, really? Have you been told that? I've been told, I've been told actually right. that I do need this. Apparently, oh, right. apparently you do. I've yeah. been given a dub mic. Of course I want to respond to that. I mean, you... These are very literary gentlemen. They've written books with great titles. Will Self Shark, that grabs you. You've written a book, um, what's it, about women write more letters than they publish. Obviously very memorable. Something like that. I've written a book as well. I've written a book. It's called The Randomised Control Trial in Psychiatry. (laughs) Nobody's bloody read that one. But in fact, they should. Because that's my job. I do these trials and I do epidemiology. I would not have said what I said about PTSD in soldiers if I did not know the true rate of PTSD in soldiers me and my team we go out to Iraq and Afghanistan to measure that in soldiers that's what we do so when we say the number is going up but the true rate is not that I'm afraid we're not allowed to talk statistics are we all I can say is that's a fact now what can we do about one, one more point all right DSM is <coughs> going to be mentioned it's always going to be mentioned and of course it's going to be mentioned because it's quite fun isn't it it's this American thing they have and every time they do it it gets bigger got lighter this time but that's only because they've made the paper easier uh, so and they invent these disorders. You mentioned a couple. You didn't mention coffee drinking disorder. That was in this year. And you didn't mention answering back to your parents disorder or obsessive love of guns syndrome. Actually, I made that one up. They don't have that one. The one that they should have, they don't have. This is one classification system in one country, not used in the rest of the world, done because of the very unequal nature of the American healthcare system, which is if you don't have a diagnosis, you don't get treatment, or your doctor doesn't get paid, which is the same thing. In the rest of the world, most people... Well, here, we, I, I do not believe someone lost their job because they, we would sack someone if they did use a DSM diagnosis. We don't use DSM Simon, in this country. Simon, you, know, you can't we say that. ICD. You know that's not true. Yes, it is true. We use the you, ICD. You know you it's a different classification. Someone. You need ICD for discharge. We you use know you ICD. sack someone for using the rest DSM of the diagnosis. Worst, in the rest of the world... One at a time, one at a time, one at a time. Just can't Brief, no, brief. Speak the truth. Briefly, Simon. Speak the, the truth. The number of diagnoses we actually use in clinical psychiatry is about 20. That's about what we actually use. And in primary care, where the, all the people with mental disorders are seen and treated, it's probably less. The DSM is an aunt, Sally. It is not true that it's in every doctor's office. It's not in mine, and it's not... I've never, ever seen it in a GP surgery where most of psychiatry is practiced. I've never seen a copy. Yeah, that's Very good. Well, now... GP surgeries can't afford to buy it. Will, any points you want to particularly rebut? Yeah, why are you applauding? Are you applauding the fact? What exactly are you applauding in this man? Because as what I see, 
It's the head of the Royal College of Psychiatrists doing a little comic turn to get your sympathy. That's what I see. I see a man doing a comic turn because he's anxious, because the emperor doesn't really have any clothes here, except statistical facts. Let's, let, no, let's drag up the horse's head. These are the guys who hand the pills out. Maybe we're the guys who've taken them. Okay? I've been diagnosed with borderline schizophrenia. I have been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and I've been diagnosed with depression. And your colleagues have handed out drugs to me. Uh, one of your colleagues, who I'm happy to name because I don't have doctor confidentiality, prescribed me Siroxat and I attempted suicide. When I went back to see the psychiatrist, he prescribed me two other drugs in addition to the Siroxat. Yeah? A hypnotic and a sedative. He said, the problem is you're getting a little bit of a bounce off the SSRL, give you some other drugs just to even it out. I stood in the, the pharmacist with a bag this big of psychopharmacology, and I thought, enough is enough. And I threw it away, and I have not taken another of these drugs ever since, and actually I'm in quite good mental health. Okay. You're Michael, not a You really want the wine, don't you? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, first of all, and tell us your name and ask you the question. Uh, thank you. My name's Susan. I'm a doctor, so I've probably received about 7,000 free pens and a few hundred sandwiches over the course of my time from the pharmaceutical company, companies. Um, and my question's for Professor Sir Wesley, and it's regarding the misbranding cases that have that pharmaceutical companies have been involved in. So there's been a number of cases. Most recently, two large pharmaceutical companies in the US were fined $2.2 billion for misbranding risperidone and other medications and trying to have them prescribed to children for, and vulnerable adults. Um, so I, my point would be that I think quite a, it's not that there's an epidemic, but rather that there's some misbranding and off-label um, sort of encouragement of doctors to use medications for those things, and that would be my point. Okay, uh, Simon, briefly respond to that. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. There have been some scandals, massive scandals in the pharma industry. I don't work for pharma. I never have. I've never had a grant from them. I don't do it. Um, there's also been some massive scandals in the NHS, like Mid Stafford. He's declared, yeah, yeah. You've declared You've an declared what? Um, in 2004. Yeah, Fab I'm not getting, no, I'm just not getting into that. I'm not getting into it. Finish. Simon, well, finish. No, 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 I'm not getting into oh, it. Oh, I've given finish. a few talks, for Christ's sake, yeah. Never I said mind. I don't do it. A few talks. A few talks. No, we're just not getting into that. Simon, finish. Respond to Susan's point, quickly. The point is... I'm, I'm not sure which one it was that, is that there have been scandals in pharma, there have been scandals in the NHS. They do things wrong, sometimes we do things wrong. I'd like to think that you correct them, I don't know. I know in my world in yeah. the NHS we do yeah. correct them. So look, we're really up against the time, but I'm going to take three more questions. They're going to have to be unbelievably to the point. Uh, Declan, this is for you. You said we should be reassured because the pharmaceutical industry is regulated by the MHRA. You didn't point out that the MHRA is 100% funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Here, here. And, and... Hold on, hold on. Is that true? Yes or no? The yes or no? Is it true? 
No. Oh, okay. A- a- absolutely, it is true. I'm an academic. Fine. Good. Uh, it That's is true. Thought. I'm not okay. these masses very clearly. It is also led by ex-industry professionals, the chief executive of the MHA, uh, uh, ARA, who was appointed last year in September, was a director at GlaxoSmithKline for many years before that appointment. Therefore? Uh, also, Simon, you have received fees from industry, so you should be more upfront about that. Okay, pass the mic to the next person. No, Thank you. No, no, Thank no, you. No, Hold no, up, Simon. No, that, Simon, I'm going to let you come back on that particular point in a moment. And then final hi, question. Hi, Ian. Just a quick question. I wonder if one of the reasons why we're seeing an epidemic in mental disorders is because a lot of problems that in the past would have been seen as social are now being medicalised. Uh, for ex- a quick example, in my workplace, we've just recently introduced redundancies. Rather than try and fight them, we've been issued with advice on uh, whether or not we want counselling. Okay. I'm giving you an extra 30 seconds, Simon, because your integrity has been slightly impugned. Can you just deal with this issue of whether or not you are in the pay of Big Pharma? I wish I bloody was. Uh, I've given about 200 talks a year. In my career, I've probably given about 10 for pharmaceuticals, and of two of them, some of them I can remember, what I talk on is non-pharmacological treatments of chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm probably I'm giving a talk for Intelligence Squared. So, you know, any, if you look me up, and I've never had a grant from pharma, and I don't do pharma work. I give a few talks, minor stuff. I think we haven't, we haven't had anyone with a beard asking a question yet. So, um... How confident can we be that the regulators are in control of the pharma industry? Very good. I think you might get different answers to that question. Um, There we are. I wanted to ask, I think antidepressants are good, but I want to know what you think about alternative medicines, specifically ayahuasca and what it's done for people who have suffered trauma and depression and also illegal drugs like MDMA and what they've done for depression. Simon, why are you shaking your head? You You didn't hear that question? Oh, do you want to ask again? Sorry. Why didn't you not hear? I want to know what you think about alternative methods of treating depression that are quicker, like the use of ayahuasca, which is a drug that is used in the Amazon that uh, the shamans use to overcome things like depression and trauma. Okay, very good. I think you winked at me, so you definitely get to ask a question. (laughs) Hi. um, I'd just like to share something. So I had a, a really difficult childhood. And so I had a borderline personality disorder, chronic depression. So I took Prozac, it didn't work. Took Eastalopram, it did. I got those for free will, so I didn't pay for them. And it wasn't faith that worked because the first drug didn't work and the second one did. So over the course of 10 years, I had psychotherapy and drug treatment. I'm off both of them now. I'm now a practicing child psychotherapist, and I can tell you that it is not the drug industry creating the disorders. It is difficult nurture and and nurture and nature relationships combined and I really worry about these kind of emotions and they're good to debate but there's so much stigma attached to people having these conditions and it isn't more acceptable to have therapy than to take the drugs but so many people need need this to get better and have a happy life so I just wanted to be brave and share it thank you very much (laughs) now Panel, I'm really sorry about this, but at the end, you're just going to have to choose two of these questions, two of these points to respond to, because I'm going to take as many as I can. Um, I'm going to go back here now. Very good. Uh, I'm very confused with what Will's saying. I don't know if depression now exists or it doesn't. I don't know if Will had been on a desert island and unaffected by uh, advertising to tell him he's ill, whether he would have felt bad. And if you do feel bad, 
What's wrong with taking medicine? Why should you suffer? Panel, there, there, there are so many people wanting to ask questions, so can you be really, really brief in responding? Will, just pick one or two points. I know you want to respond to everything. But... I just want to talk about this a little bit, about this idea of the stigma of mental illness. And, it, you know, we live in a culture now in which there's an awful lot of, you know, to be blunt, kind of tit-beating about these issues and the idea that people can't speak out and there's a terrible stigma about mental illness. And on the other hand, people are saying they're perfectly happy to go along to their doctors and be treated with a pill. They don't have a problem with it at all. Does it not catch you? Am I being a bit slow here? But who actually benefits from the idea... You know, this gentleman over here said, I don't know whether Will Self believes that depression exists. Well, depression is in the eye of the beholder to some extent. And it seems to me the stigma of mental illness depends upon the mental illness... So in other words, you can't be stigmatized for having, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder until attention deficit hyperactivity disorder exists. How can you be stigmatized for it? So who actually benefits, in a sense, from the stigma attached to mental illness? It's the people who diagnose them. Thank you. Simon? Well, I mean, I, I, I generally don't... I've agreed with a lot of what you were saying from the podium. I agreed completely with. One of the biggest problems we face is over-medicalization and iatrogenesis. I use the example of psychological debriefing for dealing with normal emotions. I deal a lot with soldiers who have normal emotions. We do not pathologize it, and we've stopped that, and now we move towards systems of peer support and just telling people, these are completely normal, mate. You don't need any help. It's absolutely right. So I agree with you completely. But I didn't agree with that last point on stigma. The stigma comes from, from the, the horrors of mental illness and the fact that for many things it is scary and unpredictable and difficult. That's where it comes from. Often our labels can make it worse, but they can also make it better. And what we know from, for example, parents whose children have autism or schizophrenia is knowing that there is a diagnosis is actually often very liberating. In the old days, there were people in my profession who went around telling people that uh, if you had a kid with schizophrenia, it was the parents' fault. Okay, it was the parents' fault. Or it was uh, the particular style of families that created autism. That was scientifically wrong. That's one thing. What but it was worse. Let me, finish. Let me finish. It was worse than that. It, the, 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 un, the, the appalling burden that this can cause in families was actually made worse by adding guilt and shame and stigma. So sometimes giving a label can be helpful and sometimes it can be the exact opposite. And the job that we have is to try and get it right. And I thought you had it half right, but I just don't agree with what you just said about stigma. Okay, Darren, make one point. Yeah. Uh, Preferably re- respond to a point okay. from the floor. There's no right answer to that last issue because some people will be relieved by receiving a label and some people won't. And you have to respect the difference and the diversity of people there. With the the point made by the child psychotherapist, no one's denying the levels of pain in the children that you'd work with. No one's denying that there's a problem or difficulty there. The question is, how is that distress and that pain and that suffering for the child, how is it conceptualised? And for me, the crucial issue is... Do we follow the modern system of multiplying diagnoses so that 
the behavior of the child constitutes the diagnosis or do we see the behavior of the child as an invitation to listen more to what the child is saying and find the underlying problem. The key difference is between the surface symptomology and the underlying structure, the underlying problem. And the modern diagnostic system, ICD or DSM, it confuses that. It makes a fundamental mistake there. Declan, one point. Um, Talking about drug regulation, um, it's fair to say that the drug industry requires regulation and it also pays a fee to the agencies for reviewing its um, dossiers. I don't think it's fair to give the assumption or give the impression that the um, regulatory bodies, the MHRA, EMEA and so on, are actually co-opted by the industry. We also have another body called NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, who reviews uh, as a fourth level of review whether or not these drugs should be reimbursed by the National Health Service. We have that here, and that's what guides prescribing and reimbursement. Great. Okay, before you knew uh, what you thought, 43% of you voted for the motion. We've overdosed psychiatrists and the pharmaceutical industry after blame for the current epidemic of mental illness. That vote has now gone up to 46% of you being in favour of that. However, the biggest swing of all has been from don't knows. 28% of you didn't know what you thought, and now only 2% of you don't know what you think, which means that the number of people against the motion has shot up from 29% to 52% representing... (laughs) Representing a 10% swing... Uh, to Simon um, and to Declan, uh, even larger than the swing to UKIP at the next general election. Uh, So well done to your side. Well done to all our panellists. It's been a lively and informative and powerful debate. Thank you all very much.